Hey, Jordan, how's it going? Hey, Rob, what's up? Well, not much. We got this, uh, you know, we have, we're in the conference room here. We got this all-hands meeting with uh, Insurgents HQ <laughs> coming up with uh, Judy's going to be there, uh, you know, the HR mm-hmm. team, the, the interns that we've mm-hmm. got. We've got a little bit, little bit of news we got to go mm-hmm. over, and uh, I just wanted to touch base with you before everyone kind of gets sure. here. What's up? Just to kind of figure out, we can kind of you know go back and forth, toss some ideas around about how we want to sort of talk to everybody about what's happening right yeah, now. Yeah, like you're talking about like the coronavirus stuff, and you know how to wear proper like safety equipment since we've like forced them to come back since we're we are essential. That that's what you're talking about, right? Yeah. Well, that we're going to have to talk about that okay. definitely because that is, yeah. you know, not everyone has gotten that message. Clearly. Yeah, yeah, apparently not. Um, but I mean, the main thing that I'm kind of concerned about right now is that I'm looking at our our, our petty cash situation. I'm looking at our payroll, uh, our retirement fund that we had talked about, and mm-hmm. I'm not sure it was the best idea to invest all of that into in like oil production companies and oil futures and and fossil fuels. Cause I just looked at, I, I just uh. looked at the, the stonks today and it turns out like we had a retirement fund going and now we actually owe money to, to that. Like it's not, the money is not quote unquote there right now because of, uh, because of the, the stonks and the oil prices. Maybe we should have thought, thought of a different approach to that. I don't want to second guess ourselves, but you know, I'm starting to feel a little bit, I'm starting to feel a little nervous about it. So, um, well, when, so when the financial planner pitched it to me they said to diversify um i took that as just you know picking yeah. several different oil companies which they're different you know so then if just one yeah, fails, yeah. that's diverse i didn't think that the whole industry would collapse i mean how could i, I how could i have known so what are we gonna i mean do we still have any of those yeah. bitcoin things laying around? We, just give, we can just give them that right i think so uh, and also an idea that i had is um you know, uh, we got the interns, obviously we don't pay them, but you know, I was thinking at the end of the day, we can just kind of give them a little bucket of crude just to take home with them. It's like a little surprise. It's more than kind of what they were expecting. Oh. Cause we got all this. It's like, it's literally, if you go down to the basement of the office, we got a bunch of barrels down there. It's just, they, cause they had nowhere to mm-hmm. put it. No one's buying right now. So mm-hmm. it's actually in our basement. Uh, pretty mm-hmm. sure that's also is a fire hazard. So yeah, I think we could just kind of give out little little sort of bottles of it, like trendy sort of like those, you know, uh, canteen type things, just with a little bit of crude. The the interns can take them home. You can use it for like lamp oil, maybe. I don't know how that. I don't really know what you do with it, but they they'd like that, right? Well, yeah. I mean, I can't imagine any of their friends would have that, so it would be a unique thing they could post it on Instagram or, I think that's what they do. Do a TikTok yeah. with it. Um, yeah, I think it's like let's do that. Yeah, I mean, I've got in my in my house. Uh, you know, lately the last couple of nights, I've just been like, I got a big, I got a big bathtub full of it. I've just been luxuriating in there, you know, just relaxing, kick my feet up. You get some whale sounds going, you know, relax in the, in the nice big, nice big bathtub full of crude oil. There's nothing like it. And I think if we can, we can really sell that to people. So I think that's, that's really the way forward. Yeah. I think problem, problem solved on that front. Um, you know, we'll figure out the retirement retirement fund later but you know it's not like they're retiring now anyway so i think it's all good there yeah and you know once we start making that money back i have no doubt that the the oil is going to rebound the money is going to start coming back and maybe we should diversify and i got a couple of ideas of some creative ways that we can we can turn those funds get back to where we were and i got two words for you cruise ships oh yeah <laughs>
everyone. Uh, hello and welcome to the Insurgents, episode nineteen. Uh, I am Rob Rousseau here. Hello, Rob. How are you doing? That is Jordan Yule. We're experimenting with the format of the show a little bit. We used to do this at the beginning, mm-hmm. the beginning of the cold open. Now we're doing this this little bit after the introduction. That's kind of fun. Yeah. It's a little change. <laughs> It's like, I'm just imagining us just like sitting in our, stuck in our apartments, like staring at the wall. It's like, oh, wow, wouldn't it be fun if we just moved the intro back? Wow. Yeah, like, this is a game like, changer. Yeah, yeah. Right? we're just like enamored with like the dumbest little things. Like, please, any sensory, any sensory overload, anything. Yeah. This is all I have to, to focus on right now. Right. Um, I hope everyone's doing well, though. Uh, welcome back to the show. Thank you for tuning in. We do have a have a great show coming up, though. We've got Carlos Maza coming on the program today. It's going to be really great to talk to him. Uh, there's a whole bunch of stuff that I think he's pretty uniquely suited to weigh in on, and uh, I'm I'm really looking forward to that. How about you, Jordan? Oh yeah, I, I like Carlos. He's uh, his video is really interesting. He just started doing um, his own video series independently. Uh, he's been doing explainers and you know cultural critiques, and he's just been doing a fantastic job. So excited to get his thoughts on. Uh, the world as it is, the media infrastructure right now, coronavirus, the, the open up the country protests, all of that. Which we agree with, and I'm sure oh, he does Oh, we're all well. on board. We have to open up the country. I need to go back yeah. to, to Applebee's. <laughs> yeah, we, we went over this whole shtick. You know, I, I can't help but laugh a little bit, though, that, you know, I know this is a serious issue, but it, it is kind of objectively funny how there's this kind of... Uh, this kind of subsection of the right that's been kind of preparing for this apocalyptic event for like years. They've been talking about it on Glenn Beck every night. You get the, the, the ads for like the, the apocalypse seed bank or whatever, or <laughs> whatever the MREs that they're all saving. They've all been ready with their bug out bags for like years, ready for this big event to start when they can finally kind of become the independent, you know, conquerors of the American landscape. Um, and then like one month goes by that they can't get like fucking <laughs> lawn care stuff and they're all just losing their goddamn minds it's like i thought this is this is supposed to be your you're in your element right now like what's what's going on with that but turns out that that some of these people aren't the quite the rugged individualists that i think they they style themselves as right it's the same type of people who like in the early to mid 2000s all got suvs because they thought they were like you know they thought they just likened themselves to the troops because america was collectively at war uh in yeah. a mountainous terrain so they, they all they all got these you know it was their god-given american right to drive an suv and like the the the, mo- the farthest or the most uh you know dangerous place they went to was like the starbucks drive through and now yeah. here they are loaded up on like uh you know months of of prepper food from Costco and all the Jim Baker and all that shit and all they want to do is go back to Chili's to get their like $9 hamburger and it's tyranny it's tyranny that they can't yeah yeah the the, the very rugged individualists in their like gated communities in suburban Arizona <laughs> right. <laughs> very, right, right. that's why they need those SUVs the the, the, the really hostile terrain there yeah. right <laughs> okay so uh, i don't want to chat for too long here because we talked to carlos for for a little while so i don't want to take up too much of everyone's time here of course everyone has a of course everyone's very busy right now so don't don't take up too much of everyone's time but uh we promised we we're gonna play some more voicemails so we've got some voicemails to play before we do that do you want to just remind everyone uh the the <laughs> voicemail number so they too can be featured on the on the insurgents podcast 
That's right. That's right. If you want to leave us a voicemail, you can do so at 202-570-4639. Okay, great. So that's the voicemail number. We always love to hear <laughs> from people that uh, that listen to the show. And we've got a couple of, of pretty good voicemails to play for you here. So I'm going to get started with that. Here is voicemail number one. Hey, uh, Rob and that other guy, I guess, uh, just wanted to call in and tell you the great show. Um, you know, I'm loving it. I was listening to the most recent episode, though, and I, I gotta say that Ken guy, uh, really upset that you got him back on. I was told that this would be a Ken-free show, um, but I, I guess you guys are going back on that, so I don't know if I'll keep listening. But, uh, you know, other than that, great show, and, uh, yeah, thanks. Huh. We got to stop letting Ken back back on despite the ban. I mean, I don't know. We had a pretty clear policy on this, and it seems like somewhere the signals have gotten crossed, mm-hmm. and he just keeps showing up. And we I, obviously it's upsetting to our listeners, and it is something that we do need to do better at, I think. Yeah, I, I don't know if that was my biggest takeaway from the voicemail, but um, yeah, I think it's, it's that's something. That's part of it. I couldn't Yeah, help. I thought I it was pretty good. I. I couldn't help I was but a notice. Big fan of that one. You you like that one? Do you like that voicemail? Oh yeah, yeah. No, I think that's that's really the tone, and the sort of the way that they address the, themselves to us and everything, or me. That's really more what I was thinking when I was kind of envisioning. You know, we could have this kind of voicemail. <laughs> the the ideal voicemail. <laughs> yeah. Uh, interesting. Um, all right. So yeah, I, I you know this one thing that's been kind of nagging me uh, about that voicemail I just couldn't help but notice that he referred to me as that other guy did you catch that <laughs> at, the be- at the beginning <laughs> yeah no I thought <laughs> that's what I thought was cool about it but yeah we can have two different we don't have to agree on everything about every single creative direction you know it's okay it's okay to have these kind of dis- disagreements or disputes sometimes totally healthy totally fine <laughs> yeah yeah right. I guess if everyone in a room agree, if everyone in the room agrees, I guess you know some people are redundant. But okay. Yeah, we're gonna bring in the interns afterwards, and we'll see how everyone the, kind of pull, breaks this pull down. the interns. All right. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so let's move on. Here's voicemail number two. We're gonna hear from voicemail number two right now. Hey, what the fuckers? It's Mark Marin calling here on the WTF podcast. Stamps.com. If you guys need any stamps. I uh, just want to say what's up to Jordan and Rob. Fucking love your show. I know a lot about podcast politics, too. You know, I mean, I did Air America for a little while back in the Bush era. You guys remember the fucking Bush era, right? That shit was really fucked up. Anyway, uh, except for that guy, Ken. Tell that guy Ken to fuck off. I got a real fucking beef with that guy. Anyway, question for you guys. Who are your guys? I really want to know who are your guys. Boomer rules. Well, that's nice. A pretty mm-hmm. famous uh, podcasting celebrity, Mark Marin, mm-hmm. calling us. That you know, that's encouraging. If he's if he's yeah. listening to the show, I'm. That's exciting. Thank you, Mark, for calling. Yeah. Thanks, Mark. Um, apologies again about Ken. Um, we know how much that bothers our audience. <laughs> you know, we'll we'll work on it. We're working on it. Do you have any guys? Who are your guys? What does that? What does that mean? I don't listen to his show in real life. <laughs> I don't know. Mean? It just means like, I think like who thing? your influence is, like, the people that you draw inspiration from, you know, your guys. Um, 
you know, like all the greats, Dick Cheney, Tony Blair, um, (laughs) Neville Neville Chamberlain, you know, those guys. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Um, I will say, I'll answer this seriously, actually, which is I think that, I think there's like a certain subsect of stand-up comedy that takes themselves far, far too seriously. And there's people that like have like built their whole identities around being like I listen to the real the real truth tellers in stand up comedy, <laughs> uh, which is, can be kind of obnoxious. But honestly, like I I can point to people like uh, George Carlin, like Bill Hicks, mm-hmm. who I think cut through a lot of the sort of conditioning that you have growing up in sort of this like uh, neoliberalized, um, very financialized, uh, atomized society that we've grown up in. And uh, as, as much of a cliche it is, I think to draw to like uh, have draw inspiration from people like that, um, I do think that that uh, both of those guys played a role in, in leading me to where I am now. Um, and um, I, I think I know, like considering the the road America is going down right now, uh, I have seen a lot of a resurgence of people sharing clips from like George Carlin and Bill Hicks, and uh, it's it's pretty pertinent stuff still. That I would still encourage people to. Uh, to check that out and maybe just don't base your whole identity around, around liking stand-up comedy though. That, that leads to nowhere. Good. <laughs> That's weird. All right. I'll give you one, one serious answer. Chris Hedges, the the author, writer, former journalist, that guy I think has probably had a, the biggest impact on shaping my worldview than anything else. Um, his book war is a force that gives us meaning. It's probably my favorite book of all time. Um, and I have a signed copy from him, like to me directly. I met him one time and I brought it and he signed it. And that's just like, probably like my, pri- well, not my prized possession. My most prized possession would probably be <laughs> the drumstick that I caught at the Slayer farewell tour. <laughs> but that's, that's pretty cool. It doesn't beat the Chris Hedges book, but it's uh, the Chris Hedges book is up there. Uh, or that's sorry. The book does not beat the drumstick, but yeah, Chris Hedges is probably the, the most influential. That's my guy. That's your guy. Nice. Okay, good. It's kind of substantive. That's nice. Yeah, right. Yeah. Good to hear that kind of stuff. Thanks, Thanks for the call, so we Mark. Got, we got two more voicemails. This is actually a two-parter. Um, this is a two-part voicemail that we got from another listener. I'm going to play them right now. Hey, first time, long time. It's Gabriella from your Menchies. I don't really have any comments. I guess the show's fine. Um, I just have a question. Who is... Okay. Because then we actually heard back from from Gabriella a few minutes later. She left another message. So here here's Gabriella again. I just called, but I'm calling back to clarify. Who is Ken Clittenstein? <laughs> yeah, I don't know her. <laughs> so sort of, did we get this one on 420? Is that? Uh... <laughs> I wasn't sure of the timing, timing no, wise, how that worked that was, out. Um, that was a couple weeks ago. Just been sitting on that one. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sounds like it. Sounds like she was celebrated a little early. I think maybe. Yeah, she might. Gabriella might have been smoking some of that good, good. Just <laughs> smoking weeds. It's possible. I mean, oh boy. Obviously, I would never condone anything like that. No. Uh, on Not this our, day or any other day. Not our no. listeners. No. No, <laughs> no, but, um, I mean, I guess we get a lot of comments on reviews of the show and people that call in complaining about Ken and we have, unfortunately, mm-hmm. I, I would like to have less of this. We do have like a pro Ken contingent as well. 
So it was kind of refreshing to hear from Gabriella, who just has no idea what we're talking about when we reference Ken Klippenstein all the time. I think that's, yeah, I think that's pretty refreshing. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, it must be nice to live in a Ken-free world. What's that <laughs> like? Yeah. If only. If only if we could all be that blissfully ignorant of Ken's uh, toxic influence. But, you know, we live in the real world here. We're realists. We've got to confront right. this kind of stuff on the day-to-day reality. So, But we, we appreciate it. Hearing from Gabriella and, uh, and everyone else that called in as well. Yes, thank you for calling. And if you do want to leave a voicemail, again, the number is 202-570-4639. Yes. And also, uh, please re- continue to review the show on Apple Podcasts. Uh, if you enjoy the show, uh, please leave us a review. It's very, very helpful. It helps people discover the show. It helps the whole podcast rankings with the Apple algorithm. I have no idea how it works. It's actually kind of silly, but it really is helpful. We really enjoy hearing from you uh, in the reviews. Uh, we got a bunch of other uh, great ones after uh, the last episode, so please keep those up. Uh, leave a review of the Insurgents podcast on uh, Apple Podcasts. Uh, very, very helpful. We always really appreciate hearing from everyone. Uh, so, Jordan, I guess we should probably uh, kick it over to Carlos Maza now, right? I've, we've kind of probably talked long enough here, but uh, mm-hmm. what do you think? Should we should we bring on Carlos now? Let's do it. Yep. All right. Well, uh, Carlos Maza will be joining the show right after this. Sometimes, sometimes it's fun to like start these things in like mid banter, but then you never know if you want to catch someone off guard or like. <laughs> right. right. Yes. I mean, we could we could just have the same conversation over again. So. Yeah, yeah. If we can just recreate sort of the banter that we had going Carlos there. Regaling us yeah. with Dungeons and Dragons talk. <laughs> you want me to what start talking about Dungeons and Dragons? I've never played it. Is it <laughs> oh it's fun? God. I take it right. It is. It is the best game humans have ever created. Um, but it's if you explain it to a video gamer, because I was like a video game person before I got to D and D, it sounds totally batshit because there aren't really rules, and you can kind of play for as long as you want, and you, like it's kind of just whatever the hell you want it to be. So which, it's like to me, I, I've always needed like a clear objective, like go save the princess, or it makes no sense. But I got into it because I was listening to this. My my ex boyfriend used to play it, so I was like curious about what he what the game was like, and I got to this podcast called Drunks and Dragons, where like four friends would just get obliterated while playing D and D on a podcast. And it was so funny, but I listened to it for long enough that I by accident learned all the rules of the game and then just got all of my friends to play with me. Cause I thought it would be fun. But basically the DM or like game master is telling a story that they've made up. And you as the players are like trying to make decisions in the story. It's like a choose your own adventure book, but imagine if you could choose whatever the fuck you wanted to do. And then okay. the rule book just exists to like resolve probability disputes so if you like swing your sword at a dragon the rule book has a set of rules for what dice you need to roll and how high is high enough to hit the dragon and the dm then like has to track how many times it gets hit before it dies but for the most part you're just like for me i'm just like telling a story that's a mashup of all of my favorite rpgs that i've ever played and my players <laughs> think that i'm like the smartest most creative person in the world and i'm like this is just this is just final fantasy tactics yeah. that i've like renamed <laughs> it as my own game and you, you get to like watch them act like watch your friends act like weirdos and be um 
like weirdly heroic and act out of character, which I think is like the coolest part of D and D is you get to watch your quiet nerdy book friend be like this badass barbarian and smash shit open and be like, I did not know you had this in you. So it's like a great, uh, it's like improv <laughs> with rules. And also if you bomb, there's no audience to make fun of you for bombing, which is like ideal. Yes. That sounds really fun. cool. Yeah. I remember for a while, like, uh, in the before times, I guess probably around uh, 2014, 2015 or so, I got really into uh, Dan Harmon's podcast, Harmon Town. Yeah, it's really had, good. Th- they had a running like D&D game there with like those kind of their wacky, you know, thing that they were doing. And uh, I always kind of seemed like it was really something I would like to get into, but I never really got a chance. So I'm getting kind of FOMO. And then um, and then Harmon, uh, Harmon eventually... I remember when, when Eric Garland did that, it's time for some game theory thread yeah. <laughs> and Harmon like shared it enthusiastically and I could never like look at him the same oh, way. No. I was like, no, it was like a body snatchers moment. I was like, oh no, what's, what's going on here? Never follow your heroes on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. That was a big one for me. Oh man. Well, so, I mean, this game kind of, it seems like it relies on the creativity of its participants. Um, so do you, you being drawn to that, I guess, is a perfect segue into our larger conversation about your own creative endeavor. Uh, and that's kind of why you're here on top of everything else. So Carlos Maza, welcome. We're, we're so happy to have you here. Um, you know, video creator, uh, influencer, uh, gay, <laughs> gay wonk, uh, Carlos Maza, thanks yeah. for joining us. Thanks for having me. I appreciate all those titles, though. Influencer <laughs> is an absolute nightmare of a thing to be called. <laughs> yeah. I had a company send me an email to ask if I wanted to um, advertise their sunglasses on my Instagram. And I was like, do you know who I am? Do I seem like the type <laughs> that wants to sell your fucking merch for you? <laughs> yeah. What kind of sunglasses are they still? Is it still for grabs? I, I don't I don't know. I'll, send, I'll forward yeah. you the email. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I could like would idly hear what they have to say, certainly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Anyway, before we get to talking about anything, what I really want to know from you two is uh, how are your stonks doing? We got some. There's some big stonk news going on today. How are we? How's your portfolio looking? My, my stonks uh, have never everything... been better. My my stonks are, yeah. are are in prime form, and I'm really happy about it. And uh, if anyone yeah. tries to come for my stonks, I'll defend them with my goddamn life. Yeah. I went all in last year in the all fossil fuel portfolio. <laughs> I haven't checked lately, but I think I had to imagine it's good. Pretty sure it's fine. Yeah. You and RuPaul have both done that. You guys hear that RuPaul owns like a fracking field and makes money off of fracking? Yeah, yeah. What? No. There, there is no ethical yeah. anything under capitalism. RuPaul's a goddamn fracker. It's all over, guys. Pack it up. <laughs> that explains. I saw this thread yesterday. It was RuPaul as fracking. As rigs. fracking, yeah, because he and legit like... makes money off of fracking on his like massive property in the Midwest. <laughs> That's insane. I was like, that's weird. It's just like one of those random threads. And now it makes sense. Like I just, I didn't get it yesterday, but now, now kind of you've, you've tied that knot for me. Thank you. There's, there's nothing pure and good anymore. Let's just all sell sunglasses and be done with it. That's it. That's what we have to do. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, maybe it's because I'm not like an economics finance guy or whatever, but it seems odd to me when the, the, like the, what was happening today is the oil prices, I think are in the negative right now. It's like, oil companies are like having to pay people to offload it <laughs> i can't help but get sometimes i get this feeling and right now today is really one of these days where it's like maybe we shouldn't have tied our whole economy and way of life to this like dying industry that's also poisoning the planet and killing our society at the same time i don't know if it was a great idea i just love the idea of somebody sitting on a shit ton of oil and being like how am i gonna move this how am i gonna move this product like what a weird spot that they never ever thought they would have to be in meanwhile the peloton people are like we're gods <laughs> nobody yeah. can touch us for the rest of our goddamn lives capitalism is super efficient yeah Jeez. i kind of want to just buy like a barrel of crude oil and just like keep it around my house just in case i <laughs> you just, can use it for just, cooking, for, right? just to have you know cooking deep frying 
That's all you, that's all yeah. you want. It's going to get so low priced <laughs> that we're going to have like this generation of new Etsy products that are just like cool crafts using crude bar- oil barrels <laughs> that they like repurposed into dumb projects for people who have too much time on their hands. I believe that's called upcycling. Upcycling. <laughs> <laughs> what a nightmare. Oh boy. Yeah. America's not really doing too well and all that when you kind of no, factor in no. all this stuff. Whole lot of, there's a lot of troubling news stories going on. I saw something that was like a cruise ship trying to pass between two massive rock faces. And it was like <laughs> coronavirus on one side and the collapsing economy on the other side. And the cruise ship was just me and the boys playing video games like nothing bad is happening. And I was like, that's exactly <laughs> how I feel about everything in my life right now. Pretty much. Yeah, just like yeah. happily at my computer talking to people. And <laughs> outside of my window, the world is relatively normal. And truly, if you open any news website... The headline is like, it's over in 13 reasons by Chris Eliza. Like, no one has any optimism about the future anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Jesus Christ. Why the end of the world is actually bad by Chris Eliza. <laughs> the end of the world in six in six charts. <laughs> oh, my God. But also, the in the we wanted to get your oh take boy. on... So, this weekend's news cycle, you know, revolve, t- obviously coronavirus heavy, but kind of an extension or a tangent to that was the Joe Biden campaign their their Trump wasn't tough enough on China to curb the spread of the coronavirus ad and this was widely panned uh, by people on the left as being xenophobic but also widely celebrated among kind of like the liberal establishment as being uh, the right type of tone and tenor to take on Trump um, in a in a kind of a responsibility context and something we've seen uh reporters say that this is going to be the direction the biden campaign went into like went toward um so you had some comments on this video i know rob has some what what, what was your what was your initial takeaway i mean like aside from the from the like xenophobic stuff that's like very kind of obvious it does feel i think part of my frustration is that it does feel like it would be a relatively normal ad in another world like that kind of thing that a democrat would run and that would seem kind of like typical American politics because the idea of like just demonizing another country and kind of blaming internal problems on external actors is like not that out of the ordinary for American politics on either side. What fucks me up is, and this is just like a hangover from the primary still, but it's just the kind of issue that you could have so easily made an ad that was politically, politically popular, just using the current moment as the case for like, a, a bigger social wel- wel- welfare state and like economic progressivism. Like there's so many good home run political yeah. messages that you could make about the coronavirus. Like the most obvious one being, this is why we need a fucking safety net. And like, how are we still letting just like bare knuckle capitalism be the way that we govern ourselves that, you know, the, the feedback I got when I, when I pointed out that this was a bad ad from like centrist or like traditional Democrats was it's a really effective political message that like, yeah, maybe it's, it's racist, but this is a, this is a a good way to get at voters. And it's like, even if you think that's true, which it's not, there's such a much more obviously compelling message, which is you are being forced. You're about to be forced to go back to work during a pandemic because the way you organize our economy does not give a shit about workers. And so people in power are willing to let you die in order to keep their stonks up. And that feels like such a much more, (laughs) gut check compelling message that we just cannot use because we've picked a candidate who has made an enemy of like true economic populism for the entire primary and it's like such i have such a such blue balls about it because i'm like we could have crushed this it could this, oh, yeah. this is like such an easy layup for anybody 
who wants universal programs right now, and we just can't do it. And so, like, if you're a Biden person, or you've throw, you've like pinned yourself against economic populism during the primary, you kind of are forced to say this is a good ad because you don't really have like another avenue of attack anymore. You spent the entire primary saying universal programs are bad. Um, government assistance is bad. The idea that we should have a strong welfare state is bad. And so when we really, really need it, you're stuck doing this like chicken shit xenophobic bullshit because you've lost the ability to make a broader populist message about the response to crises, whether external or internal. Or just like a super simple message also is just Trump fucked up. Tens of thousands of people are dying now. Yeah. To, like, this, say nothing you like don't even need to go with this, this angle. Yeah. Well, it's also like it goes to show that like, this kind of rhetoric is only or the rhetoric around protecting frontline communities and the marginalized and people of color and all these communities that are on the front lines um, is only used when convenient. And when there's moments like this, it shows that in many cases, it's just hollow. When we see a rise in... Um, anti-Asian uh, anti American racism. We, we see calls from those communities constantly like, hey, be mindful how you talk about this. They're stigmatizing us. They're smearing us. They're maligning us. And then the Biden campaign rolls out this, 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 uh, but I mean, they basically all but said like they called it the they could have just like called it the Wuhan virus and just like got gotten gotten on with their day. Like this is just I don't know. It just it, it follows that same path that so many people have have gone down. That like China's responsible for this, and they are are you know there's this existential threat that must be taken on like head first. And at in the crosshairs are you know people from Asian American communities who are on the receiving end of racism and that the biden campaign would just turn a blind eye to it in this like nationalistic like leadership and strength uh type of video that they're trying to portray it's just it's so irresponsible and callous and again it just it shows that this kind of rhetoric is hollow and used when convenient it also just feels like the the laziest and cheapest form of political criticism because like one thing that is so obvious to me is that in a crisis any rational state will seek to cover its ass and do PR damage control and lie about how guilty it is for a crisis. And like, yes, the Chinese government does this, but also very obviously we're all reminded that the American government is currently doing this. And also Obama- and doing and, a shittier job at it as well. And like Obama <laughs> and Biden did it too. Like it, it is not that remarkable that state actors would lie to avoid criticism or attempt to hide their failings. It's like it's like a reality of, of political systems. And obviously we, we don't like it, but as a form of criticism, that is very easy. Being like, this person lied when they had their ass hanging out is very easy. A much more compelling argument, obviously, would be we need safety nets for when these crises come up. But making that criticism would require much more political bravery on the part of, of the left, because it means that the problem is not a few individual bad actors, whether they be Trump or, or, or Chinese officials. It's we need uh, to reevaluate the way that we organized our economy and society. And that is like a much more meaningful political position. It's one that people can rally behind, but just requires more work and a more ambitious political project. And so it, we're left with this like kind of... Um, it just feels very small potatoes fighting over who wasn't honest during the outbreak of a crisis, which like nobody is actually mm -hmm. honest during the outbreak of a crisis. What do you do about that dishonesty? What systems do you have in place for when state actors fail? Do you have a safety net to catch people when they're, when politicians act self-interested? But doing that would just require a kind of like political imagination that is, I think, missing from, from democratic politics for the most part. Yeah, and I started to get a really bad feeling about this uh, at the 
Biden and Bernie debate that happened when they when China came up and Biden, you could tell, was like making an extra point to be I'm the tough on China guy. And he's he was kind of like, listen, Mac, you know, doing his thing, talking about how, how bad China is. And um, when you combine that with um, looking at what the Trump administration is doing right now and some conservatives where, uh, you know, their electoral uh, possibilities are looking really, really slim when you can see that they're presiding over this massive health crisis, they're an economic collapse, and the the way that any politician, but especially people on the right, are going to try and counteract that, like you were mentioning, is by blaming external forces, blaming foreign countries, and you've already seen Trump pivot towards that with respect to China, and people like Tom Cotton and some of the really far-right people that are like in the Senate and in Congress talking about how, you know, these conspiracy theories about how this was kind of like a started in a lab or it's bioterrorism or we need to sanction China or go, we need to be tough on China. It's all kind of leading us down the path to the U.S. starting up more of like a Cold War that could potentially get worse. And when you have like the Democratic candidate, instead of saying like, no, let's not do that. Let's not go down that path at all. He's going to, it seems like Biden's going to be the one to say like, no, I'm even more like in the classic Biden the way that he does. He's going to be like, no, I'm even more to the right on that. You can't even get to the my right on that issue. And I'm going to show you that I'm even tougher. And it's like, that's not, that's not going to end well. That's, that's a, that's going to be a problem. That's not going to, that's not going anywhere productive for, for anyone in the United States or in China. It feels like we've, we've, we had the chance to avoid the typical conservative framing of blaming other state actors for domestic problems. And instead of using it as an opportunity to force a real debate about domestic policy, we've just gone back to trying to prove <laughs> their argument, which is that like all, all internal problems can be blamed on outsiders and it's never our fault. And it's, um, it's just very strange to see almost like a weird kind of Stockholm syndrome, syndrome that we have that anytime conservatives give up the ground they want to fight on, instead of shifting it to our ground, we try to win back on theirs. We try to like use hypocrisy or or being like, we're tougher than you are stands. And the result is that that framing is always dominant and you're always essentially playing their game. Um, and it's just much harder to win on their terms and, and they're like us versus them framing than it is to just propose an alternative form of framing, which I think in this case would be like, crises are inevitable. We need stock gaps and we don't have any mechanism to protect people when crises hit and it's um i think that ground is like way easier to win against conservatives especially it, with like a pandemic which is particularly not state driven it's particularly ruthless and uncaring about political partisanship or ideology um and we just kind of we don't have that ground now because we've pushed the view or the locus of debate back outside of our borders um and and it's just that's like where conservatives want to be they want to be the debate to start from china good bad as opposed to how can we better deal with things that don't really have a good or a bad, they just are. And it seems like electoral malpractice too, because you're playing by their set of by their standards and trying to appeal to them, like you're just bound to lose because they're going to continue to shift the goalposts. Then it's going to be, oh well, you like I mean, he's just really just falling into the trap. It's like if you want to be tough on China, why is Hunter Biden doing X, Y, and Z in exactly. China? Yeah. And it's going to create a huge fucking headache for them. It's like they're just falling into this stupid trap. And another thing that really bothered me over the weekend was, um, you know, they 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 were celebrating this. Oh fuck, what was it? God damn it. Sorry, Rob. I might need you to cut this out for a second but the, the biden campaign was like um oh they were celebrating like they were celebrating these ads like um that were like you know we got to take on trump on uh his behavior and his ac and accountability and like people on biden's campaign who work in digital were like 
really like celebrating the success of this ad and, and future ads uh, about Trump's behavior uh, and really hitting him on his approval numbers. And, you know, these were the same people who worked on the Hillary campaign. It's like you just fucking lost in the same strategy. Oh, you yeah. know what it was? It was the um, airing the uninterrupted press conferences for Trump. They're like, oh, hey, this just plays to our favor. You, what fucking happened in 2016 that everyone had a mea yeah, culpa yeah. about? The un, uninterrupted airing of Trump's campaign rallies. Everyone thought that was going to backfire. And no, all it did was get Trump free airtime where he could look, you know, like a leader. And now here he is looking president. He's in the fucking White House. He's in the, he's in the, the, the West Wing just every single day on your national TV. If the Biden campaign thinks that's going to help Biden, you're, you're fucking crazy. It's also just like... It- that it isn't a political ideology like criticizing somebody's tone or temperament or even like uh, their missteps and not being presidential enough does not actually describe a, a an affirmative view of how the world should be or what kind of world you're trying to create and people's political behavior is often i would say is almost exclusively defined by what their political identity is and how that matches with a particular worldview and so it's very difficult to motivate people by X person behaved badly because they're not really giving them a, an alternative future or world to imagine beyond just like this world minus that bad behavior, which <laughs> right, and right. when the world is on fire, like imagining <laughs> a world that is on fire just minus Trump is definitely an improvement, but it's not really creating a, a political vision or world in a way that that cements um, political policies as part of someone's broader identity in the way that like you know, a, a defense of the welfare state or, or a defense of universal programs would not to describe an alternative to Trump, but an alternative worldview. Like how do we, what, what do we imagine utopia looking like? And so that's just like, what trips me up is we, this is going to be me, me just like in the morning for the remainder of the primary, but you had this possibility of a political candidate that wasn't just a criticism of Trump's behavior, but a criticism of the ideology and worldview that motivates it and a, a an affirmative description of what a different um, motivation for politics would be. And that's gone now. And you can dunk on like Trump being an asshole as long as you, <laughs> for how, however long you want. He's an asshole who represents a particular view of the world, both of, of who is good, who is bad, and what we should do about it. And criticizing Trump being silly in a press conference, no matter how good it feels for, for liberals and progressives, does not offer that same political mobilizing function, which is explaining like, what are you fighting for? Are you just fighting to get this idiot to stop being an asshole on TV? Are you fighting for something that is a bigger project than that and can explain the problems of the world beyond just this one person? And we just like can't right now. The the focus is just on this one person being an asshole. Yeah. And for like, number one, I think Trump's base likes that he's an asshole. Like they don't care about any of that stuff. They think it's cool and and funny and good. Um, And also uh, another thing is that... um, I mean, I think a lot of these like these like scandalized never Trumpers who are conservatives, but who do who do pretend to be very scandalized by his behavior and his boorishness. Ultimately, at the end of the day, I'm not sure this is like an actual motivating factor for any of these people to not vote for the Republican Party. I suspect that many of these folks, as much as they claim to be against Trump and as much as they kind of encourage the right wing of the Democratic Party to like crush everything to its left. Ultimately, I'm not sure a lot of these people are actually going to. Uh, vote for the Democratic Party, um, and like you said, Carlos. I mean, it's not just about. Um, I, I, you know, I agree. Trump is really bad, and we like we should be worried about getting rid of Trump, and that should be a, a priority. 
Um, but it's not just about him, but it's about the, the system that led to Trump being elected in the first place and the, the sort of inherent contradictions in that system. And if these aren't resolved or addressed in any way, then, yeah, I think a, a, probably a Biden administration would be better for a number of reasons than a Trump administration. But what wouldn't be better is if none of the systemic issues got addressed and then you have a more competent Trump coming right down the pipe in 2024 or, or whenever. Uh, and that's going to be a much more significant problem. Uh, if if someone who's Trump who's much more competent and who's less of a, a senile like used car salesman uh, reality show host takes power, then that is going to be a really big problem. And that's th- nothing that the Democratic Party leadership is doing right now is giving me a whole lot of hope that any of this stuff is going to be addressed meaningfully at all. I think I think what makes the current crisis so destructive is like yes. The, the the administration's missteps on dealing with the emerging pandemic made the problem worse. But the like big meta crisis, which is in response to a pandemic, we're all forced to stay home and the economy can't grapple with that. That is like, if Trump is gone and that's a Republican president, that problem really isn't alleviated. And it's like, it's almost one of the, um, the like mental blocks we have, I think that the left has is um, that the reality is that the pandemic would be destructive even with a good president, like even with a with a a, a Democrat in office right now, the pandemic yeah. would be a fucking pandemic. And so you would have this yeah. massive breakdown in the economy. And those things like this, as much as I wish we lived in a world where like a good politician could always protect us from bad things. The, the I think the better progressive argument is like bad shit just happens regardless of who your political leader is at any given moment. Like you don't. The pandemic is not here because Trump. He made it worse, but this shitty thing of being stuck at home and like not being able to work and having to depend on government assistance to get your basic needs met, that is like a thing that will sometimes just happen to your country because we live in a globalized world where disease spreads. And so like, given that reality, what would you like to do about it? Would you like to build some goddamn safety nets or would you like to keep praying that this never happens and and blaming other governments for how they grapple with this like awful reality yeah. that they are also suffering from, and uh, and so we just can't really do that right now. We're, we're like, there's almost this like this false belief or like a way that we soothe ourselves by thinking if we just got rid of Trump, we wouldn't be in a pandemic, but we would be. And you need to make broader progressive arguments about how we should prepare for that kind of thing if you want to alleviate people's if you want to speak to people's dreads about the current moment. I think people kind of kind of like intuitively get that this shitty being stuck at home thing is not just Trump's fault. And like there is some bigger tension about um, the role of government and like the function of of social programs and social welfare that you have to speak to to get people to understand why this could look different and, and what what different world they should be excited by beyond just like, you know, a, a relatively competent Democratic leader saying, hey, you're still stuck at home. And we have no social programs to help you right now, which is like not really that much of a dramatic improvement in the world of the pandemic. I mean, it, I, I was just thinking about this 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 dynamic where everyone's trying to blame China and you have both campaigns now uh, trying to act like they're harder on China. But thinking through that, OK, let's just say they, they do and they finally convince everybody. Yeah, it's China's fault and you got to be tough on China. Then what? Like these aren't going to go away. All you're going to do is what? A bra- a, a, it's a fight over branding. Like the, the nothing changes substantively, and like we could have had somebody who had that safety net, and you know the media continually attacked and maligned him because they were like they didn't want the conversation to continue beyond let's just pay for healthcare for or let's just pay for bills for people who have coronavirus because then once you started once you started suggesting like 
well, what about cancer? Then it's like, oh, you can't say that. Kamala Harris's mom had cancer. How dare you? Yeah. You fucking bastard. They, they, they can't let people think past these limits. Um, and I think that shows like another reason we wanted to have you on is because the media and the way it covered this campaign and how it's manifesting now it's just it, it's a, it was a complete and utter failure. And you're someone who has been strident uh, in your arguments for independent left leaning media. And you recently launched your own initiative uh, to do so. Do you want to talk about that and give the listener like a, a brief primer on what you're doing? Yeah. So if, if you don't know who I am or just like why I'm here, I, I used to um, make a media criticism criticism series, uh, a video series at Vox where I just talked about. Um, sort of the failures of right-wing media and and how media coverage like warps our understanding of the world. Um, and I went independent at the start of this year and launched my own uh, YouTube channel and have been making my own videos um, completely alone. Um, and I think, I mean, it, the first video I, I really made was about this like natural and kind of like unseen and unspoken tension um, with trying to run progressive candidates in a media environment that is dominated by corporate-backed media companies or media companies that just are themselves corporations um, and sort of like the, the quiet bias that just shows up in all of our reporting and, and coverage. And and this is not like a, I'm not making a particularly novel argument. I mean, like Bernie was making his argument as a candidate, but also leftist thinkers have been making this argument for like 60 years. Um, and, and it's been like an, an ongoing criticism, but the, when Bernie made this argument, he was treated like a, like a, like he was a grenade thrower um, because the argument is, is essentially that corporate media or media that relies on corporate advertising is going to have a natural hostility to anti-corporate candidates. It's going to have a natural hostility to candidates who are criticizing the profit driven models that those media company executives use to run their companies. And so the perfect example of this is like when Bernie said that, that, that the, the Washington post, which is owned by, um, Bezos would would have a natural bias toward uh, against uh, a candidate who's been like railing against Bezos and, and Amazon in particular and just private corporations more broadly. And you know, like when CNN was covering this or when the Washington Post was covering this, they had this like pearl clutching about like how could Bernie <laughs> say this? Um, we've never gotten an order from Bezos. We've never gotten an order from Jeff Zucker to cover anyone differently. And the argument that I've been trying to make and the argument that like leftist thinkers have been making for a long time is you actually don't have to be given the order. You are hired because you're the kind yes. of person who never has to be given the order. That you exactly. Th there's a reason yeah. that there are no socialists hired to be CNN contributors, or why the Washington Post like <laughs> struggles to have any socialist focus in their work. Because to the corporate executives, that kind of viewpoint is outside of the mainstream, and they hire people who agree with that with that essential um, goalposting. Sorry, what were you mm -hmm. gonna say? Yeah, if you believe something different, you wouldn't be sitting here right now. Right, like exactly. Chomsky said in that famous exactly, uh, and 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 I've had the experience is sort of in like my own private career, but a lot of um, leftist thinkers have have talked about like battles they have with their editors or with their bosses to tone down their rhetoric or tone down like the editorial perspective they're bringing into their work, which is just a really fancy way of saying that leftist shit doesn't belong here, and it's often disguised as like a concern about editorial judgment, but. The reality is that the status quo and like corporate media broadly has a very clear editorial bias. And, and you saw it in the coverage of, of Bernie's campaign. There is a natural kind of like ubiquitous, invisible preference for 
capitalism and free market economics and neoliberalism and just a general fondness for the ultra rich and corporations, which you can see sort of like in the obsession in comparing Bloomberg and Trump's wealth when Bloomberg was running for office and this like real anxiety about depicting Bernie as um, uh, aligned with, with the Soviet Union or aligned with, with uh, communist countries, that there is this like very obvious bias that pops up when there are these candidates who, who, who break from the mainstream. And that same anxiety, and it, it's just frustrating because when a socialist or leftist tries to succeed in corporate media environments, they are often punished for having a bias. The, the, the um, subtext being, you know, us, us corporate friendly ones, that's not bias. That's just journal. That's just journalism, or that's just objectivity. Um, and so there is a real need for a media ecosystem that can survive outside of the corporate framework. And it's tough because, like, the the strength that corporations have is they just have a fuck ton of money. And so you're, you're always going to get out advertised and out platformed by a CNN. Um, but I think there is this growing awareness, especially after Bernie's two attempts, um, that like the the media outlets that we think of as being like lefty or lefty friendly, like the New York Times or the Washington Post are actually not lefty friendly. They're, they're friendly to a very particular version of corporate backed democratic yeah. politics, but to, to broader leftist or, or progressive goals about um, altering the way that the economy is structured, they're actually quite hostile. And so there needs to be, I think, a more aggressive project on the left to develop um, not just like news institutions, but broader uh, media institutions and cultural institutions that can can talk about plainly and bravely the like quiet corporate bias that has infected all um, traditional media and that has been disguised for years as like objectivity or neutrality, but actually has a pretty significant impact on the way that we view, judge, and understand um, politicians who advocate for different types of politics. Yeah, you can't trust them to accurately and responsibly cover a leftist movement when the end goal of a leftist movement is to affect their bottom line. Like, they just won't do it. Um, and every other party and wing and sect of the political spectrum uh, is more, you know, amicable to their, their business operations. So I, 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 I totally agree. We absolutely need to build out independent leftist media. We also, my, I've been thinking about this for a little bit. Like, I think we just need to start also thinking about different platforms and independent platforms too. Because at what point do they just take us off Twitter? Do they just take us off Facebook? And I don't want to be too tinfoil hat, like, like shadow banning, like the conservative, like fear mongering. But like at some point, I can't imagine if the DSA hits critical mass or or whatever, these types of these pseudo free speech platforms would allow <laughs> movements like this to build on them when it could affect their stock prices or affect their, their revenue. Um, I just think it's like we have to have some protected, separate and isolated platform itself where we can communicate. Yeah, which is fucked up. And because, Carlos, you've been on the front lines of this as well on YouTube, trying to alert uh, the people that that curate YouTube content about the amount of like violent and toxic and intense uh, far right stuff that's out there on YouTube that's basically allowed it's become this whole ecosystem, and because that that doesn't that's not really posing a threat to the economic status quo of anybody, that kind of stuff is allowed to to continue as under this kind of broad free speech umbrella, uh, but the same rules don't seem to apply to the other side of the of that argument and, and, and leftist media, that's kind of making a more of an argument to, to shift the status quo. Yeah. I mean, this is like one of the, the weird meta frustrations I have um, because like my version of going independent was going on YouTube, but that, that was precipitated because I had this massive public fight with YouTube that had allowed for 
hate speech uh, to exist has always allowed for hate speech to exist yeah. on the platform and makes a lot of money off of it. And that is that is a leftist critique of a media platform. Like the critique of YouTube wasn't just they allow for hate speech, but specifically that they allow for hate speech because it allows for, it, it supports their bottom line and allows them to profit, which is actually quite similar to the critique of CNN, which is like you hire monstrous contributors and make them fight on air because it gives you, cause it draws ratings and gives you more money. And you ask shitty gotcha, like how will you pay for questions during your debates? Because you want to antagonize the left because that fight draws, draws money. So in, in, in all cases, we have like this primary problem, which is it's hard to make leftist critiques of the status quo on media platforms that are that are friend that are corporate driven and friendly to the status quo, and also that the reason those media platforms are destructive is because they have a financial incentive. And so we have to kind of make this like difficult for me. It was like this really difficult sacrifice of like I know that publishing my content on YouTube makes YouTube money, and like I'm kind of mm -hmm. stuck there for the foreseeable future because there isn't really a viable alternative. I, and and I don't really know the way out of it. I will say. One thought that like has haunted me during the primary has been that it is like absolutely fucking bonkers that we allow cable news companies to host and moderate democratic primary debates. Like yeah, I get yeah. I get why that makes sense for the for the general because Republicans aren't going to agree to have a, a non corporate centric debate, but for the primary the questions that have dominated every primary debate use corporatist framing to ask about how you pay for xyz um are you being too far left are you being too radical how you get moderates and that significantly impacts i mean like if you look at any research of the way that media impacts voters significantly impacts both what voters support and what they even imagine as being politically possible in terms of like their political imaginations and it's just fucking bonkers that we have ads for pharmaceutical companies running in between questions about how to how to regulate the pharmaceutical industry. And so one like very easy shift for me in my mind is like have those debates sponsored by unions. Like have those mm -hmm. debates centered around sort of like the the backbone long-standing democratic infrastructure that democratic voters care about and are comfortable with, but do not cede the ground so quickly to CNN. There's no good reason to like let them make make money off of it. And uh, I I think that like the bigger project of creating leftist media is very difficult, but but the smaller project of like don't let these don't let the debate we have within the party about what the future of the party should look like be on a battlefield that is already tilted to to produce a particular outcome. That to me seems so obvious and easy, and um, I don't know what like financial incentive the, de the Democratic establishment has in letting CNN run ads on those bad boys. Like, just to, just say no to them. <laughs> They're going to cover it no matter what, right? Like, yeah. CNN still makes a profit f from covering those debates, and you can let them stream it, but let the, the ones who ask the questions, the ones who, like, set, who kind of, like, set the Overton window for the debates be people who ideologically are, are, are not beholden to corporate interests from the get-go. That, to me, seems like such a, an easy ask. Yeah. Well, I mean, one thing you could even do, and this is a crazy idea, I know, but you could just publicly finance the whole election system <laughs> and not have this giant oh year-long uh, circus sideshow designed to make profits for cable news companies. That could be a thing you could do also. I don't, but, uh, I don't know, you know who, got, maybe who, that's... who put Mao on this podcast, but I don't want that, that <laughs> How does anyone... Red no, one shit. Get, no one can get rich off of that. What the fuck are you talking about, <laughs> yeah. dude? 
I don't know. Sometimes I have wacky <laughs> ideas like that. Yeah. You know, maybe, Plus, it wouldn't be neutral. It's much more objective to just ask how you pay for it 85 fucking times in a row. That's, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's, that's different Well, it's because you have different responses. Yeah. What's well, like you were mentioning is it's not even about protecting the status quo, but it's this like fetishization of civility and uh, this horse race stuff and making sure that any political coverage is is about, you know, like dumb entertainment bullshit and not actual like substantive uh, you know things about actual issues that affect people. I mean, this is this is like Bernie's like primary critique of the media, that is, is very very I think pertinent and something that should be talked about. But then of course when he does say this, this is just further evidence that oh he's just like Trump because he criticizes the media. Uh, but it's really like this is really a conversation that needs to be had at some point in the American media. But it doesn't seem like that's a, on the on the table to be discussed anytime soon. Yeah, I mean, I think CNN or like cable news covers that bullshit for the same reason that Biden runs an ad about China is that both of those create the illusion of political dissent and like of of um, of, of a leftist response to politics. But neither of them require the audience to think any more critically about the broader system that helps those actors profit. So you like cannot really, it's much easier if you're CNN to, to have a, a debate about whether Warren and Bernie should have shook hands and like what that means for politics more broadly than to ask questions about like, if for-profit insure healthcare is unsustainable and cruel, what does that mean for for-profit media? Like there's just no real way to cover that <laughs> uh, objectively without kind of like criticizing yourself as the actor or being skeptical more broadly about um, why a for-profit system doesn't work for the basic services that people need. And so it's just much easier to like focus endlessly on fucking what did Bernie and Warren whisper to each other? Dear God, what was <laughs> happening there? And it's like, of course, this is like really easy. It's the illusion. It's pseudo politics, right? It's like, it's, it's reality television and it's a really good distraction um, from this big lingering question, which is like, why do people profit off of medicine? What is happening right now? <laughs> like that's a much scarier question for, for a Jake Tapper to have to ask. Another thing, oh, so on the debate question specifically, when you're talking about the networks, I mean, I want to remind people that the DNC was even considering giving Fox a primary debate. And if you want to talk about fucking disingenuous framing, we could have had two hours of going down the line. Why do you want late term abortions? Why do you want post birth abortions? And just like just throwing just absolute like rotten tomatoes at, at candidates for what? For what is the gain? And it's because, you know, part, I would say part of it is because they want to try to appeal to independence or disillusioned Trump voters, but also I think, and also why they won't ever veer away from cable broadcasted debates, uh, because when you have reporters or quote reporters or TV hosts or whomever asking these types of questions, it absolves them mostly, uh, at least to public appearance, of any guilt or association with this type of framing. So instead of having a DNC independent produced uh, and streamed or whatever, and to Rob's credit, it should be publicly financed, and it's such an easy lift for them to do that. Um, but instead of having a DNC-created and hosted moderated debate where they would ha then be on the hook for every question, question in the framing and any pushback, they can wash their hands of it. Oh, we had no control. That was CNN. That was Jake Tapper. Sorry, whatever. And then they just go down this... Uh, and, then, and then beat back any criticisms of the media in comparing them to Trump. So it's like almost like the perfect crime where they just any responsibility or, or culpability is all on the networks and the DNC knows this is going to happen, but they just let it happen. And 
For what? I don't understand. Like, there's no profitability here. There's no gain. You could so easily produce a live stream, put it on YouTube, stream it on Twitter, stream it on Twitch, whatever. Reach younger people, mobilize younger people where they're at. Even have a donation component built in where you could raise money with it. But instead, they're what? They're doing what? Enriching CNN? And ultimately, I mean, well, part of the reason is to beat back the left. Yeah, I I feel like a little bit guilty around this because my my sense that, like, the awfulness and the almost caricatureness of Fox News has has given the DNC or progressives in general like an out about um, not being critical of of traditional cable news, whether it be CNN or, or MSNBC. And it is true that it's very it's much easier to make fun of the like partial birth abortion type, very culture war story uh, type questions that Fox News will ask because mm-hmm. they are patently ridiculous, and that is really silly, but. The obsession with how you pay for it is a Fox News question. It's like as yeah. ridiculous. It's as slanted in its framing. It's as meant to elicit yeah. a defensive response from from the left. And it's just they are different types of bias, right? Like Fox News really gets off on the on the bullshit culture war stuff, but that corporate. Um, anti-universal program bias that exists on CNN is as profound and you would not get different questions from Fox News about those issues. Like, are you going to raise taxes on the middle class? Like, uh, how will you pay for it? That kind of stuff is exactly the type of framing you would expect from a Fox News. It's just about a different issue. So it's it's, it's weird to me there, that it's almost like I wish I had spent less time worried about Fox News because it its awfulness gives this other awful shit um, a kind of like illusion of banality, of illusion of like non-offensiveness when it is, um, there's just no way to talk about it with, without recognizing that it's like extreme anti-left bias. And this like bullshit about appealing to, to independents or ind- appealing to moderates, like Republicans are successful at winning independent votes, not because the Republican presidential candidate will be asked like how you protect a woman's right to choose and have to like move towards the middle. They appeal to moderates because they make a really bombastic, uninterrupted case for a political vision and a, and a political ideology, and they never have to play defense. And so that's appealing to, to voters, where Democrats explaining how they help the pay for things, no matter like how money your answer is, no matter how prepped you are on what program you're going to cut and what taxes you're going to raise to pay for a social program, it's a defensive answer. You're trying to explain why your fear about me is not right, and that's just not mobilizing. Like Even if you're an independent or moderate, that's not sexy. All you remember is Democrats have to worry about this problem in their approach. And that is not, um, it turns off independence because you're, you're spending time explaining why the other side's arguments about you are not correct instead of articulating uh, an affirmative vision for the world. And those, it's, it's strange that somehow those CNN questions always end up putting Democrats on defense while Republicans get to play offense consistently. It's weird how that almost feels like it privileges one side over the other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, the, the, the manifestations of the slanted uh, media world dynamic, let, you know, it, it, this weekend we saw that, it, sorry, sorry to repeat the same word, but it manifested as uh, open the country protests and we need to get back to work and all of these people violating social distancing and violating stay-at-home orders and largely celebrated by right-wing media we saw these people get out on their state capitals or wherever they live and demand outside of a baskin robbins in one instance uh (laughs) demand that the country reopen uh because they are encouraged by trump really like in a in a way of like liberate what was like liberate minnesota like in a very seditious with an addition for virginia people to yeah with a 
with a gun specification for Virginia too, which was really yeah. alarming. Um, yeah, that's it, not that's not great. No, terrible. And yeah, the end result <laughs> of this could be like you know we're going to see spikes in infections. We're going to see more people probably die, and where these places were held or where these protests were held. And um, you know a lot of people compared this to the death cult, um, the the right wing death cult. And you just did an explainer video of this death cult concept specifically as it relates to uh, coronavirus. Uh, do you want to kind of give the listener an overview of like you know what that concept is and how you broke it down? Yeah, I mean, I've just been grappling with this um, this reality that that the reason shit, the reason the coronavirus pandemic feels like a humanitarian disaster in the U.S. when it feels like a medical crisis in other countries is because you know, like a lot of European countries have these really strong social safety programs to allow them to take care of people when they aren't working. And so I made this video about the way that Americans think about work and the way that like neoliberalism more broadly has made us think about work as our, our worth, we've been told forever, and our, um, our worthiness of assistance and help is tied to our ability to work. Like if you want something in this country, you have to work for it. We have like the worst unemployment insurance in, in the industrialized world. Uh, we like, we, we attach things like Medicaid and SNAP benefits to work requirements. Like you basically get nothing in this country if you aren't working. And it's part of this like big neoliberal ideology that like, yeah, work sets you free. Like your worth as a person, if you don't, if you don't work, you don't get to eat. And for a long time, that's, that's just been like a truism about American politics that really neither side questions. Like, like Democrats are also the ones who are advocating for reducing, um, funding for big government programs and attaching things to work benefits. We like have accepted this Republican framing that everyone needs to be able to work. And so we've been a country running on empty forever. Like nobody can afford an un unexpected bill, millions of people without health insurance. Like we just, we live paycheck to paycheck as a country. We're like perpetually running on empty. And that's a product of like neoliberalism. And you could just do that for a long time, worshiping at the, at the, at the altar of the free market. But when there's a crisis like a pandemic, suddenly all these people can't work. And so you have this issue where it's like people are being told to stay home and then they cannot pay the bills to stay home and, and eat food. And the result of that is that you end up having a bunch of idiots saying, let's go back to work. Like we want to, we want to work. This is about freedom. And you know, we can like laugh at them and call them morons. And like a lot of them are just like Fox news bring people who like cannot be helped. But there is underneath these like freedom protests, a real criticism, which is you cannot in good faith ask people to stay home and then not give them the government assistance to pay for food. Like you, we are a country that where you can't really stay home. Like what are people supposed to do if you're ever living paycheck to, to paycheck? And so I tried to just explain how the, the pandemic has, has like revealed this like unsustainability of, of worshiping at the free market. And that the demands now to let people go back to work are kind of do sound like a cult. Like the, the idea essentially is, yeah, it sucks. You're going to get sick. But sacrifices need to be made. Like we're not gonna, have, we're not a country of government handouts. We're not a country of government assistance. You need to earn your keep here, and if that means you die, you die. And like people, people have actually like vocalized that opinion. Whether it's the um, lieutenant governor of Texas or Glenn Beck saying like the elderly should be willing to die to get back to work. It's it's fucked up, but it's it is the natural conclusion of a country that worships at the altar of the free market and and views the the, the worth of every human as tied to their ability to work. And while it is true that the pandemic is like very, is a unique experience, and, and we hope this doesn't happen like more than once in our lifetime, the more baseline experience of being unable to work because of something out of your control is like an inevitability in all of our lives. Whether it's because you get sick or you get pregnant or something happens to you that's out of your control, you're not always going to be able to work. And 
there needs to be something in place to catch you when that happens, prefer preferably government programs. And um, it was really frustrating making that video because this is what I was saying earlier that like both in terms of like media institutions and as democratic politics, we've lost, we've given up the grounds to say, all right, what happens in this situation is the government comes and helps you. We're so allergic to the idea of a welfare state and so allergic to this idea that sometimes you're not the one in power and not the one to control. And we need to have people who help you when that happens, that we can't really blame the current crisis on the economic system. We have to just like basically shame these people who are protesting um, and, and wanting to go back to work while knowing deep down that like, they kind of have a point. <laughs> like if, if you don't have money to pay for food, you have to go back to work because we've created a country where we don't have any government aid programs to help you when you can't work. And so I'm like really conflicted about the video because it's a, it's a critique of neoliberalism, but also I'm like very sympathetic to these protesters. A lot of them have Fox News brand. A lot of them are just like, you know, reactionary dumbasses, but you can't just yell at a whole country, don't work, stay home. It's for the best but then not answer the follow-up question, which is, okay, how do I pay for medicine then? How do I pay mm -hmm. my rent? And the answer to that question is very obviously like big state economic progressivism, but we don't have a political um, landscape in this country where we can really give that answer. And so we just stare at these protesters and say, well, you just have to stay home. I don't have to tell you, you have to stay home. It's for the common good. And that's like a, that can only last for so long. Like right now it's a couple of protests and a couple of idiots on Fox News, but if this stretches out to being months and then like over a year and you don't have an answer to the question how will i pay for food i think you're gonna get a lot more people protesting and being angry angry and talk about the second amendment because you just denied them the basic obvious collective response to a crisis like this yeah i think like i'm sympathetic to that as well although i would say that i think a lot of these pro the people that got featured in these protests last week like a lot of them, I think, are like small business owners. They owe like boat dealerships and and whatever hairdressing salons or or what have you. And so for a lot of these people, it's like they're not even they're saying, "Oh, I want to go back to work." But what they're really saying is like, "I want my employees to go back to work." Of course, to yeah. Go back to making me money. Or you point out like Glenn Beck, who's like, "Yeah, I would I would go back to work and die for the for as long as we could continue the have capitalism keep going." But like, it's not like Glenn Beck's going to work in a fucking Amazon factory or something. Right. He's going to go to his his studio and he's going to be totally fine he's not going to get at any risk of like of harming himself by doing that so yeah that's that's the thing is like I, I want to avoid a situation where they view themselves as allies yeah definitely and like you point out as this goes on further there will be people that that do need to work for a living if the government's not giving them a fucking answer about how they're going to be helped to pay the rent or pay for food or medicine you're absolutely right that they are going to be uh, uh protesting to go back to work because that's their only option i mean that's 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 absolutely true but I mean, it seems like, you know, I saw this news story, uh, Governor Kemp there in Georgia, opening up the country, opening up the state, uh, gyms and barbers and hairstylists uh, allowed to reopen on Friday. We've got theaters and restaurants reopening there in Georgia. So it seems like that's just, I think everything's just going to go back to normal soon. Yeah. I, right. I, I think it's creating like a political moment where um, this is like the, the what's the trouble with, with Kansas type thing of like a of, of false conscience is that we're creating a political environment where the working class has reason to see allyship with business owners and bosses and the ones who, who have economic power because they because they don't have an alternative possibility to imagine. So if you're a, a low-income worker, right now it's just your boss saying we need to get back to work. But as your boss stops paying you and you have no other way of getting 
food, you might start seeing your boss as an ally. And, and uh, some of these protesters will eventually be working class people who do think that the Republican Party and these like freedom first, get back to work people have their best interests at heart because Democrats can't answer that kind of like baseline, how do I get food on the table question that they have on their minds. And that's my fear is that these AstroTurf campaigns start becoming a legitimate locus of political um, of action for the working class because Democrats just don't have an answer right now beyond stay home, yeah. wait it out, isn't Trump an idiot? And that scares me. Yeah, someone said recently it was like they're they're gonna they 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 need food, and you know they're either going to take it or you can provide it for them. And when they take it, it's not going to be civil. So I mean, you have a choice. They're going to need it eventually, um, and that the government is willing to just let people, uh, you know, get sick and infect others to avoid uh, helping them and just providing it. Uh, it really shows kind of how neoliberalism. Um, you know that the, it operates in a world even as evil as this. Like they're not they're not helping inmates. They're not helping the homeless. They're painting lines in parking lots. Um, why would they help workers? You know, it's, they just do not fucking care. Yeah. And another thing that makes me a little bit nervous is that uh, ten years ago, when we saw kind of similar astroturfed right wing protests, uh, sort of this fake populist movement uh, start to bubble up in America. Well, as I recall, uh, those people ended up basically taking over all levels of the United States government. So <laughs> probably not great. Uh, that doesn't mean very good things for the future. Because um, I remember we were all making fun of them, too, in 2010. And we thought it was very funny when there are silly hats and everything. And, uh, you know, oh, they're just being they're just, you know, they're they're mad that there's a black president. And they're going to go away soon and didn't really work out like that. So, you know, no. hopefully. <laughs> Hopefully that's not that's not going to be a, a, a sort of something that rhymes in American history in the next ten years. Oh God! <laughs> Please no. Yeah, uh, I guess we should get going. But Carlos, thank you so much for joining the program. It was great to talk to you about all this stuff. Thanks for having me and letting me um, vet my like existential and political anxiety uh, <laughs> in a way that feels more productive than just staring at my bathroom mirror and screaming, "Oh God! Oh God!" ten times in a row. <laughs> yeah. That's what we're here for. Of course, happy. happy. Yeah, right. So where can people uh, find your new, your your videos, your content? Where can they subscribe? I'll find you online, all that stuff. Yeah, you can see my um, independent videos uh, on YouTube. It, it, the channel name is Carlos Maza Tube, uh, but you can just search my name and, and it'll come up. But you will find a lot of um, very awful things about me too, because I'm not beloved on by the YouTube right. <laughs> um, and then you can find me on Twitter at Gaywonk, G-A-Y-W-O-N-K. And there's a link to my YouTube channel on there too. And uh, Patreon, if you want to support me on Patreon and, and all that stuff. So uh, yeah, that's where you can find me. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. All for, hail for the invisible us. hand. All hail the invisible hand. <laughs> we bow to the algorithm. <laughs> Thanks guys. Thank you. Take care. Hey everyone, thank you for listening to The Insurgents. If you want to subscribe to the show, you can find us on iTunes or Spotify or at Substack, theinsurgents.substack.com. You'll get the latest episodes delivered straight to your inbox as well as our newsletter. On Twitter, we are at InsurgentsPod. Tweet at us, harass Ken in our replies, and then send us your hate mail to theinsurgentspod at gmail.com. Thank you once again for listening. <laughs> <laughs>